This high roller, big shot, rich gambler from Vegas is driving in the California uh, rural area by the wine country. And he passes a farm, and outside this farm is a hand-painted, crude, wooden sign that says, Horsa for sale, $50. Horsa for sale, $50. So it's nailed to the fence outside. So as he's passing by, he's like, who sells a horse for $50? This can't be right. This is probably a joke or a mistake, but I got to find out, right? So he pulls, he drives his big fancy car right onto the, uh, onto the property. And as he pulls up to the barn, this old Italian man comes outside, right? Sounds like my grandfather. So don't be insulted if anybody sounds like this. <clears throat> so uh, this old Italian man comes out. He goes, hey, can I help you? And he says, uh, is that sign right? You're selling a horse for $50? He goes, yeah, also for sale of $50. He says, uh, why so cheap? He goes, well, you know, uh, the horse, uh, he no look so good no more. He goes, uh, you know what? For $50, I already pulled onto the property. Can I take a look at him? He goes, okay, I go get him. But uh, no be disappointed because uh, he no look so good no more, okay? $50, he no look so good. He goes, okay, yeah, whatever. So he, he, the, the fold farmer walks in the, in the barn. He comes out with this horse. This guy's eyes pop out of his head. This horse is a world-class, lean muscle, head-to-toe, thoroughbred stallion, looks like a Belmont Stakes winner right off the bat. He thinks to himself, is this guy crazy? He thinks this horse doesn't look too good? He says, uh, can I take this horse for a ride? He goes, okay, but uh, you know, I tell you, yeah, 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 I know, he doesn't look so good anymore. Let me take him for a ride. So the, the gambler gets in the, the, the saddle, and this horse takes off like a rocket. And he can hear cash registers ringing in his head. He's thinking to himself, I am going to make a fortune racing this horse. And this old fool was going to sell him to me for 50 bucks. And just as that thought registers in his mind, that horse runs full speed, headlong, smack into a tree. And launches this guy 30 feet away. He rolls 100 times, almost breaks his neck. He gets up and comes running back to the old Italian farmer and says, what in the world is wrong with this horse? And the farmer says, I told you, he no look so good anymore. <laughs> now, I'm sure somebody's going to call the Anti-Defamation League because of my accent. Again, if you've never met my grandfather, which none of you did, that was my, what my grandfather sounded like. He doesn't look so good anymore. The humor of that joke is one guy says the word look and means something, and the other guy says the word look and means something else. They're using the same lexicon, the same vocabulary, but they have two different dictionaries because basically that word can be used two different ways, right? So today we're going to answer two questions. We're going to examine the scriptures, and as we examine the scriptures, the scriptures are going to examine us. And as we examine ourselves through the scriptures, we're going to answer two questions about ourselves. Each of us is going to answer two questions. Question number one, how do I look? Question number two, how do I look? Question number one, how do I look? How do I look when the world looks at me? What do they see when they look at me? Question number two, how do I look? How do I look at everything around me? How do I look at others? All right, ready to go? All right, we are going to park at some point in a minute or two. We're going to park in 2 Kings 5. We're going to be in the Old Testament. But first, we're going to start off in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. 
Incidentally, I had to go to my car and get my regular Bible that I use on Sunday because I came in with my preaching Bible, which is almost the size of my Honda Civic. And as I was, we were over there singing, I looked at this pulpit and I said, oh, right, my Bible doesn't fit in that pulpit. I forgot all about it. So as I was walking out to the car, uh, Deacon Eli says to me, uh, where are you going, brother? Thought I was leaving. <laughs> I said, oh, I got to change my Bible. He goes, well, just make sure it's a KJV. Don't be coming in here with any kind of Mickey Mouse Bibles in here. <clears throat> all right, no Mickey Mouse Bibles. Luke chapter 4. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's first public sermon in the uh, synagogue where he grew up in Nazareth. Um, and he starts talking to them about various things. Let me get to Luke chapter 4. And as he's talking to them about various things, he mentions how God say, did some miracles for Gentiles in the Old Testament. First, he mentions how uh, uh, Elijah helped the, the widow. But then he talks about Elysius, which is the New Testament word for Elisha. Look in verse 27. <clears throat> Luke 4, verse 27. The Lord Jesus says in his first public sermon, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elysius the prophet. Listen carefully. And none of them was cleansed, save, saving Naaman the Syrian. I'm going to read that again. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elysius, Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Okay. Pop quiz first, Bible Church of Matawan, New Jersey. Aside from Naaman the Syrian, how many lepers got cleansed during the ministry of Elisha the prophet? Zero, right? Zero. Please remember that. It will be important in a couple of minutes. Okay, now you can, uh, now we're going to go park. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do some drive-bys, but we're going to park predominantly in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. Please, 2 Kings chapter 5. <clears throat> Look how tall Johnny Murphy is. Holy smokes. Wow. I was going to say he's taller than me, but that's not like a big accomplishment, so. Man. <clears throat> Whatever you're feeding that kid, I'll take some. Um, 2 Kings chapter 5. And you can, if you have a bookmark or a slice of pizza or something or, or a cup of coffee, you could stick it right in 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, 2 Kings chapter 5, I've got to tell you, is probably one of the most preached accounts. It's about Naaman the Syrian. And it's a very common, popular, I think any man who's preached five sermons in his life, any preacher who's preached four or five times has preached on Naaman, the cleansing of Naaman. Why? Because it is one of the most spectacular, illustrative types, Old Testament types, pictures, foreshadowings of New Testament salvation. Therefore, it's an easy message to preach. You can almost hold this Bible upside down and preach it. It really is. We're going to talk about Naaman. I preached about him years and years ago when I was a new preacher. But uh, we are going to talk about him. But first, we're going to talk about something that I think is maybe even far more applicable to us. Because most of us, I believe, in this building are already saved. We're Christians. I see a lot of the people here that I know. Now, if you're new, I got something for you, too. I'm glad you're here. You came to the right place today. But for those of us who know the Lord, have been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, <clears throat> there's somebody else in this passage that I think often gets glossed over, overlooked unnecessarily. Second Kings chapter 5. In a minute, we're going to look at the real star of this show, I believe. And uh, <clears throat> a young lady who doesn't even have a name, kind of like the thief on the cross, you know. 
and uh, who has a, a very, very tiny, she's like, a, she's like a comet. She just appears on the scene for a couple of verses, and then you never hear from her or about her again. But she really, really is a star in, this, in, in the scriptures. So uh, let's say a prayer, <clears throat> and then we'll dive into the study. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace, Lord. Lord, thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for assembling us in this place. We pray that all that we do be well-pleasing and glorifying to you. Lord, uh, you know that we do not need a sermon from me. We need a message from you. So we ask that you would teach us as we read and study your word today, Lord. We pray that all that we do be well-pleasing and glorifying to you in the blessed, precious, gracious, all-powerful name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you. And everybody said, amen. amen. <clears throat> Second Kings 5. Is everybody in Second Kings 5? Okay. Second Kings 5. I'm going to read the first five verses. We're going to go back and pick some things apart, and then we'll, we'll pick it up again. Second Kings 5. Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. You see, the Bible says that even though this man is a pagan idolater, he's a Syrian, he is not an Israelite, he doesn't even believe in Jehovah, yet Jehovah used him to give Syria deliverance from the Assyrians who were gobbling up all the, the nations around them. God actually helped Israel's enemies. Why? Because they were going to be a chastening rod to Israel for their idolatry down the road. <clears throat> Even the wrath of man shall praise you, the psalm says. Now, let's look, let's, uh, look verse, two, verse 2. And, and the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, it doesn't tell us how old or how little this little maid is, but the term little maid in the Bible typically refers to, can refer to a, a girl from, you know, very small, four, five, two, three, up to maybe adolescence. But she's uh, put in the position of waiting on Naaman's wife, so I imagine she's got to be old enough to be, carry out household duties and be responsible, so let's just take a ballpark and say she's at least 10, I'm thinking probably closer to 12, maybe even 13 or 14, okay? <clears throat> That's my Speculation, conjecture, feel free to argue with yourself later over that. Now, verse 3. And she said unto her mistress, meaning Mrs. Naaman, Would God, my Lord, meaning Naaman, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, referring to Elisha. Everybody in Samaria, everybody in Israel knew who Elisha was because of his great miracles. <clears throat> For he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying... Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. So they went in and told Naaman. Now watch. And the king of Syria. Now this gets to the ears of the king of the whole country. What this little girl said. <clears throat> and the king of Syria said, go to, go, speaking to Naaman, go to, go. And I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of raiments. Boy, who wouldn't like to have 10 new suits plus all that silver and gold? That's a lot of loot, folks. That's a lot of money. And he brought the letter, um, so no, sorry, up to five. All right, so let's read up to five. Let's stop at five. Now, first of all, how does this little girl, this little maid, look 
to others. How does she look? Well, I don't know if Naaman himself led the raid in her village that took this little girl captive, or some other people did, some servants or soldiers of his, and something about this girl. There is something about this young girl that stands out to these people, right? Almost like uh, Sarah was so beautiful that of all the women in Egypt, all the newcomers in Egypt, they took her and said, Pharaoh's got to see this girl, right? Something about her. There is something special. There must be something special, something unique, something outstanding about this little girl. However old she is, 10, 12, maybe 14. Something about this young lady that stands out, that makes them bring, either Naaman takes her or they bring her to Naaman. And Naaman assigns her to be his own wife's personal attendant. Right? The Bible says, I think, twice about Daniel that he had an excellent spirit. He had an excellent spirit, even though he was a young man. I think this young lady has that same excellent spirit. Something about this girl, the way she looks to others, people like this, something special about this girl. Naaman's got to see this girl. She stands out. They bring him to her, and he gives her. Now, remember something. Naaman is the captain of the host. In our system of, of military economics, he would be roughly equivalent to like, I guess, a five-star general or maybe our, what is it, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is the highest man in, in Syria next to the king. He can probably afford, you see, he's got tons of money that he brought out of his own resources to buy, thinks he's going to buy a healing with. He can probably afford to hire very, very good talent. He can afford top talent, but something about this young lady makes him say, I want this girl waiting on my wife. I don't know what it is. How does this girl look to others? And look at the extent to which this man, Naaman, this top military commander, and the king of the whole nation went to based on this little girl's testimony. Two sentences. This girl blurted out two small, short sentences. And the top military commander and the king of the nation took her seriously enough that they went to the extent they went to, started gathering letters and decrees and money and whatever it is. Folks, this is no silly little kid. There is something about this young lady that people take seriously. Makes me wonder, do people take me seriously? Do people take you seriously? Now look, I started off with a corny joke. And let me tell you, we hang around after church time, you're going to hear lots of corny jokes out of me, he'll tell you. I love jokes. I come from a family full of stand-up comics. Any holiday in my house is like amateur night. It's like watching a ping-pong match. Who's got the funniest joke? But when it comes to my faith, that's no joke. At work, do people know you're a believer? I don't mean you're running around like you just got off the mothership, waving your Bible, beating people up with scriptures. But can people take you seriously? If they have a question about, the, about faith or about something that somebody asked them about religion, or a person who practices another religion just bought the house next door to them, and they want to know, can they take you seriously? Can they ask you those questions? Do you seem to them like you know what you're talking about? Are people taking you seriously? How do you look to others? I think, I look at this young lady, I'm like, man, they took this kid seriously. Are people taking me seriously? Now, Look at the confidence with which this young lady speaks. Look at the conviction with which this young lady speaks. Think about something. Her nation, Israel, is in full-blown idolatry, right? The king at this time is now Jehoram. 
And he says he put away the, the Baal from the nation. But guess what? Her parents grew up under Ahab and Jezebel. Full-blown idolatry, Baal worship. Yet somehow or other, her parents instilled something in her that made her realize there's a God. His name is Jehovah, not Baal. He's the real deal. Whatever it is they sowed in that kid took root. The other day, I listened to Stephen Andino's message. And you know what I did? After I heard it, on Sunday morning, when I saw his parents walk in, I'm always in the vestibule greeting people. I said, by the way, I heard your son's message. Good job, mom and dad. And Kevin laughed. Oh, I didn't preach. I said, no, you didn't preach at that pulpit, but you preached to that kid. Whatever you sowed in that kid took root, right? I see both of your sons up here, right, in ministry, doing something. Whatever it is, those parents, right, she had the right mom and dad. In a time when everybody else is worshiping Baal, this kid knows Jehovah is the true God and speaks with a conviction about him that grown men, military men, regal men, political men take her seriously. Whatever it is about this girl, something special is about her. Her confidence, the way she speaks with conviction. Think about confidence for a second. Just the other day, my wife told me that she heard some young, I don't know if it was a, a young man or a young lady, I think it was a young lady, early teens, maybe about as old as this young lady, 12, 14, was, I don't, know, I, I don't know, people were bashing her on social media, so she committed suicide. Folks, we have 12 and 14-year-olds, and here we are, the greatest nation on earth, pounding our chest about the, the power and our military might and our economy and all of those other things. We have 12 and 14-year-olds going into clinical depression, committing suicide, because they don't know what's real. They don't know what reality is. To them, because we talk about a God we can't see, he's a figment of our imagination. Yet all those imbeciles on social media who live in cyberspace, they're real to those kids. What they have to say, their opinion is more important. I don't know, maybe I grew up differently, but to me, your net worth was what you had in the bank. Your value was what you had, you know, your value as far as monetary things. Your value, you had, you had to actually have some kind of a value, not just a picture of me somewhere on social media, right? Your value is what you posted yesterday. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Folks, let me tell you something. We need to get a hold of our kids and sit them down and open this book and show them what's real. Just because they can't see the God who, who wrote this book doesn't mean he's not real. We need to sit down and show these kids what's real. The next generation that's coming up, the next generation that's going to be leaders in this church if the Lord takes that long to come back. They need to be able to speak with that same kind of conviction. How sad is it that people are more concerned about what's going on in a a space, in in a, a, a matrix that doesn't exist than they are. They're more concerned about the opinions of somebody on social media than they are about the opinion of the God who loves them who made them in his image. Listen, sit these kids down and open this book and tell them you're valuable. You're not some cosmic accident. You didn't evolve from a pile of mud. God made you. There's a God in heaven. He cares about you. He made you in his image. And he loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. He doesn't want to be without you. He wants you to be with with him for eternity. So much so he sent his son to be tortured to death so that he could make that happen. That's how much he loves you. That's where your value is. That's why you're important. That's how she looks to others. Now let's see, how how does she look at others? How does she look at others? 
Folks, I gotta tell you something. I have been saved twice as long as this kid has been alive, even if she's 13 years old. I am ashamed when I look. That little blurb, what is she's mentioned? All right, she, she, she pops up, pops on the scene in verse two. She says two sentences in verse three. She's referenced lightly, quickly in verse four, and that's all we hear from her. But in that little microcosm of existence in the scriptures, this girl puts me to shame. I read about what, how this kid acts, and I'm ashamed of myself. You know why? She is the living embodiment of lots of New Testament principles that I am supposed to be walking out in my life on a daily basis. And if you're a believer, you too. Love your enemies. How's that one? Matthew 5, 44. How about uh, first, uh, was it first Corinthians 7? Paul says, art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. Right? Always complaining about a lot in life, envious of who has what or whatever it is. Oh, why didn't I hit the lottery and whatever, right? Whatever state you're in, whatever state you're in. How about God uses the weak things of this world? All right? Some little girl without a name, he used her to bring about something that was so important that, what was it, 900 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned it in his first public sermon. Now, She's got the, she had the right mom and dad, but we see as far as how she looks at others, she's got the right ministry. She's got the right ministry. And incidentally, that ministry is the same ministry that you and I have. The day you get saved, you get put into the ministry. Pastor Dean preached that many years ago. You're in the ministry. If you're a Christian, you're in the ministry. Don't think, oh, this guy's in ministry and I'm not. No, if you're, in the, if you're a Christian, you're in the ministry. You know what your ministry is? Serve wherever you are. Amen. Serve wherever you are. Look around, right? How do you look? How do I look? Look around, see what needs to be done. Where can I be a blessing? Where can I be a good testimony? Where can I be a good witness? Where can I let the light of Jesus Christ shine? Where can God use me? What can I do? How can I help? Let me help this guy mop up that water from the, from the floor that he knocked over when he came here. How can I help? What can I do to be a help? She's got the right ministry. Serve where you are. All right, you're in, first, you're in 2 Kings 5. Keep your bookmark there. Listen, flip ahead. This, this is a scripture we got to see. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I got to tell you, there are a lot of scriptures that are hard to believe. Joshua made the sun stand still, right? A whale swallowed Jonah. I believe them because they're in there. If the Bible says Jonah swallowed the whale, I believe that too. It's in the book. There are scriptures that are hard to believe, and then there are scriptures that are just hard to walk out. Philippians 2 has one of those that are hard to walk out. Philippians 2, ready? Now, people who are big into legalism will love to pummel you with verse, say, what is it, 11 or 12? Let's go to Philippians 2. Let's look. Uh, look at the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Boy, a Jehovah's Witness will clobber you over the head with that scripture all day long. Got to work out your own self. Got to work it out. Work, work, work. Work out, right? Now, listen to that. Work, fear, trembling. That doesn't sound nice. Oh, but look at this beautiful breath of fresh air in verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Ah, okay. So God works it in. I just got to work it out. Oh, but look at this big wet blanket in the next verse. I love verse 13. Verse 14, not so much. Ready? Do all things without murmurings and disputings. What? I'm sorry, God. Can't you give me something a little easy to do, like fight a dragon? Do all things. He said all. 
That, all, that word all in the Greek is a very sophisticated word. I don't even know what it is in Greek, but it means all, as in all, as in everything, okay? All things without murmurings and disputings. Folks, I can't even drive to work on the Van Wyck Expressway without murmuring and disputing. Traffic slows down on, on Staten Island Expressway for five minutes. I'm already like, oh, I think I missed the rapture. This is the tribulation. I got to adjust my whole eschatology now. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. You know, we often find ourselves in situations we don't like, that we don't want to be in. Shocker, God knew you were going to be there. God may have put you in that situation himself. God, why did you bring me here? Why are you leaving me here? You know I hate these people. Why are my in-laws here? Why can't they go home? Don't they have houses they can eat and drink in? Why are they in my house, right? Why is all of this going on? Why is this happening to me, God? Don't you know I hate these people? Exactly. And you're going to stay right there until you learn to love those people. Because that's the spirit of Jesus Christ. God's trying to do something in you, get you to the point where you'll do things without murmurings and disputings. Like Pastor was saying, right? We start crying in our beer, right? Until we see, like, wow, I didn't realize how good I had it, right? Folks, listen. Whatever, wherever you are, God's not surprised. Whatever you're going through, God's not pacing back and forth in his office in heaven, wringing his hands, ripping his hair out of his head, going, oh, I can't believe what happened to Johnny Murphy. Oh, I can't. God knows. God allowed it. And I think that's what this young lady is looking at. God, you could have prevented this, but you allowed it for some reason. You must have something for me to do around here. She's got the right ministry, and also she's got the right mindset. Look at this. Though this man is a pagan, an idolater, the captain of the host, he personally may have killed her parents. Do you realize that? This man may have wiped out her whole village. Yet she looks at him the same way God looks at him. How do I look? God loves this man. I'll tell you what, I wish, I'd be lying to you if I stood here and told you I could look at that guy the same way. I read this and I think to myself, if that were me, I don't know if this is you, maybe you're a lot holier than me, but if that were me, I'd be thinking, oh, cool, he's got leprosy. Good, I hope he drops dead soon. Maybe I can escape. That's not what she thinks. That's not what this kid is thinking. This kid looks at him the way God looks at him. Look at Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Now, I know... All of us deacons were supposed to come up here and quote Ezekiel 37, I believe. Right, Pastor? <laughs> All right, so just, we'll get to that later. Just go to 33 for now. Folks, you know, there are some verses that I have to, like, recite to myself. I have to, I have to kind of just keep meditating on to get me through certain things. For instance, when I'm dealing with people who have no idea of scriptural things... They're lost people, dead spirit, lost soul. I have to remind myself what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I have to constantly remind myself that when you're dealing with people who, who are not saved, do not have any regard for this book. You're dealing with people who don't think the way you do. You have to understand that. And here's a scripture that I have to remind myself of when I find myself starting to hate people. Ready? Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Verse 11. 
Ezekiel 33:11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Folks, I wish I could say that. Sometimes I see some wicked person. I find out, you know, some bad thing happened to them. I'm not sitting there going, I have no pleasure in that. Yeah, I'm taking pleasure in that. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's, it's not right. I have, I, where is it? 11. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Folks, I got to tell you something. You know, when I find myself hating people, when I do something I'm not supposed to do, and that's watch TV. TV is designed to sell you stuff. Either they're selling you merchandise, right? You watch a show for an hour, they interrupt it three times to sell you some detergent or some perfume or whatever it is. But then there are other things, like news and whatever it is, they're designed to sell you something too, because remember, they have to sell airtime. So they have to sell you something. And in order to sell you something, they have to work on your emotions. You know what's the easiest emotion to manipulate in a human being? Anger, resentment, frustration. So all I have to do is get people polarized against one another, right? So when we hear that there's some scandal in Washington and some politician got caught in a scandal and now he has to resign, what do we do? The first thing I do is I want to see what color is that, and is that little letter after his name. Is it a red R or is it a blue D? Because I hope he's not from my party. I want him to be from the other party. Right? I secretly rejoice when people I do not like get in trouble. But that's not the spirit of Jesus Christ. That's not the Lord's heart toward people. Folks, you know what's the best thing to do? Shut the TV off and get on your knees and pray for that person. Pray for that person. Remember when, uh, was it, Aaron and Miriam came against Moses? Oh, you married that black girl. We don't like black people. Oh, you like white people? All right, let's turn Miriam nice and white. Gave her leprosy for a few days, right? There you go. You like white? Here's some white for you, okay? Listen, but you know what Moses did, right? First he writes, now Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. God told him to write that, right? Imagine having God telling you to write that. Well, yeah, I'm the, okay. But then it says Moses fell on his face and prayed for them. Amen. How many times when they come against Moses and Aaron, so they fall on their face and pray for them? Man, if I had the power to split open seas and call down fire from heaven, there'd be a lot of people in trouble. But that's not the heart of Jesus Christ. This girl puts me to shame. Look at the way she looks at others. She's got the right mom and dad. She's got the right ministry. She's got the right mindset. But look, she's got the right message. Look at what she says. She says, would to God, my Lord, meaning Naaman, were with the prophet that is in Samaria. That next sentence, folks, don't make the mistake that I made for 25 years reading this Bible with that next sentence. I always read those words and pronounced them correctly, but I, in my mind, transposed one of the letters in one of the words. You see, that says, let's turn back there, right? Second Kings chapter five, let's go back there. Verse three, she says, would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria. Now the sentence says, for he would recover him of his leprosy. But you know how I always read that and understood it? He could recover him of his leprosy. He could. She did not say that. She said he would. She said he would. Now remember our pop quiz, folks? How many lepers got healed before Naaman got healed in, during the ministry of Elijah? How many? Zero. How does she know Elisha would heal him? She didn't say he could. Anybody who knows that a chapter before this 
incident. He's raising, resurrecting a dead boy. If he can raise the dead, he can heal the sick. Anybody who knows anything about him knows he could. She didn't say he could. She said he would. Wow, that's presumptuous. Right around the corner over here, there's a shopping center. There's a diner. I have never seen it before in my life until right before this service when we had to run into a store over there. I had never laid eyes on that building. How obnoxious, presumptuous would it be for me to walk into this building and say, hey guys, I just want to let you know, if you go to that diner around the corner, they would comp you a meal. They would give you a nice four-course dinner on the house. Do you know the owner? No, I have no idea who he is. He could be standing on my foot right now. I have no idea. Have you ever been there? Nope. Where are you getting this information from, right? Where is this kid getting this information from? She didn't say he could. She said he would. She said he would. Wow. Let me tell you something. You know what I think happened here? I have no way to prove this. Pure conjecture, mere speculation, mental doodling on my part. I think God told her to say that. I think God put that word in her mouth. Do you know why? Because if she told this man, well, told his wife, and then she told her husband, there's a guy who could heal him. Right away, in his mind, he would start reasoning and say, all right, well, he's some miracle worker. I guess he could heal me, but would he heal me? He could, but would he? This is not a matter of ability. This is a matter of willingness, volition. Would he heal me? Well, let's see. I'm uh, a Gentile. I'm a pagan. I'm an idolater. I don't believe in his God. Um, I led raids over there. I may have killed his best friend last week. I don't think this guy would. He Maybe he can, but I don't think he would. This little kid said he would. Amen. He would heal you. Now, I want you to think about something. The minute she said that, she wasn't making a suggestion. I'm not saying she's a prophetess. She wasn't making a suggestion. She became an official spokesman for Jehovah God Amen. in a foreign land. Amen. She became God's official spokesperson in a foreign land. You know what we call that? We call that an ambassador. Amen. Right? An ambassador's assignment is always in a foreign land. It's always away from home. That day, she became more than a captive. She became an ambassador. Do you know who else is a captive in a foreign land? The Bible says I'm seated in heavenly places. Sometimes when people start talking about things going on in the world, I say, oh, listen, I, I don't really care about that. I don't live here. I don't live here, right? I have an address here, but I don't actually live here. I'm only here on assignment. I live up there. If there's a problem up in heaven, let me know. Otherwise, couldn't give a rip about your problem down here. Please listen carefully. She stopped being a captive. She became an ambassador. We do not really belong here, right? Someday we're going to get air mailed out of here, right? When our prince comes to take us away. But very, very important. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Keep your, uh, keep your bookmark over there in 2 Kings. Now we're in 2 Corinthians 5. Beloved, are we speaking with that same conviction? Are we ambassadors who speak with that same confidence, that same conviction? Listen to the message that we have to preach, okay? I'll start, we're in five, uh, let's start in 17. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, in Christ, in, in, when you get saved, you get put into Jesus Christ. You get put into him. That's very important. It'll be important in a minute. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Right? Isn't it great? You get a new life when you get saved. Right? It's cool, right? Get a new phone. Show everybody, oh, I got a new phone. Hey, look at my new car. Hey, did you see my new suit? My new shoes from Macy's? Did you see all this new stuff I got? How about when you get a new life? Can everybody see that new life? Look at the message that's been given to us. He's a new creature. All things have become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself. Hath, past tense, by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. The minute you get put into Jesus Christ, you're in the ministry. He gave you a ministry. What's your ministry? The ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is just a fancy Latin word, means to make soft again. You know what the, what the medical term for your eyelashes is? Cilia. Cilia, right? Cilia. Soft, right? Re, again. Con, with. Soft. To be soft with again. God's not mad at you anymore. That's what it means. Reconciliation. Hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So we got a job, and we got a message to pass on. We got a ministry of reconciliation, and we got a word of reconciliation. Now watch. Now then, we are ambassadors. Where does an ambassador serve? In a foreign land where he might possibly be a captive or become a captive. Now we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That is our message. Our message to the world is you don't have to jump through hoops anymore. You're not a hamster on a, on a wheel trying to run yourself ragged and impress God with your holy life or your good behavior. It's already been taken care of. That problem that existed between you and God, Jesus Christ took care of it already. Your debt's been paid, right? Uh, It's going to be tax day soon, right? Pretty soon, now everybody's starting to see the commercials for tax day. Do you know I am not afraid of tax day? April 15th, I'm not afraid of tax day. You know why? Because every other week when I get my money, when when my company pays me, they take my taxes out ahead of time. So by the time we get to tax day, I don't owe anything. I'm not afraid of judgment day for the same reason I'm not afraid of tax day. What I owe has already been paid. Now, that's the message. Jesus Christ already took care of your sins. If you come to him, if you trust him, if you put your faith and your trust in him, he will save you. He would recover him. I can say that with confidence. Do you know no other faith on earth can say that with confidence? Every other faith on this earth, every other religion, philosophy, pick the term you like, is a works-based system. You can never tell somebody, you are saved. I am saved. No one knows if he's saved in any other system. He's waiting to die and Allah is going to get the scales and weigh him or St. Pastor Azul has got to see if he made enough donations to the whatever. There's no end. With Jesus Christ, it's finished. That's the message, the word of reconciliation. God's not mad at you anymore. Somebody already took your punishment. If you want to, you can be saved today, right now. Now, she had the right ministry and the right mindset and the right message. 
Oh, but now we're going to look at a real knucklehead. Watch this guy, Naaman. Let's go back to verse 1, where we were. You want to talk about pride, talk about vanity, talk about ego? Here it is. This man is the living embodiment of human reasoning blossoming into prideful contention. Watch this, verse 1. First of all, how does he look to others? How do others see this man? Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master. He's honorable. We read this, right? Deliverance unto Syria. He's a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. How does he look to others? Well, you know what? Outside of his house, when he's got on his fancy uniform with all those impressive medals and his ornate helmet, and his top-of-the-line shield and sword, he probably looks really impressive to everybody. He probably looks prominent and powerful and prosperous, and I'll bet you every young man in Syria looks at him and goes, I'd love to trade places with that guy. Everybody looks on his outside. You know, it says man looks on the outside. We have no choice, right? Only God can see inside. Does anybody remember many, many years ago when that secret came to light that Arnold Schwarzenegger was having an affair with his maid or house nanny or whoever that was, that lady was, I think, I think she was a, the, a maid in the house, and he was having an affair with her, and they had a child, and it's funny, I always thought to myself, I don't know why this always sticks in my head all these years later, but I grew up on those Terminator movies. So to me, Arnold Schwarzenegger was always the Terminator, right? We looked at all those muscles, we looked at his outside, and we saw the Terminator, but God looked at his inside and saw the fornicator. We can hide things from the rest of the world, but God can see inside. Folks, to the rest of the world, he looks impressive. Everybody wants to trade places with him. But when he goes home and he takes off that armor, and incidentally, I think this leprosy just started for two reasons. We're going to see in a minute where he talks about the, the leprosy is in one spot, right? He says, Elisha, I thought Elisha was going to come and place his hand over the place, Right? There's a place, there's a spot. It's not all over his body. And also later on in the text, if you keep reading past where we're going to read today, it says that when, he's, when he goes with his king to go worship this pagan god, he says the king leans on his hand. Right? The king takes his hand to bow down before the god, before their, their false god there. Now, i got to tell you, if I'm covered in leprosy, I don't care how, how old you might be and how much help you might need bending over, you're not grab, grabbing my hand, Right? So I think this leprosy is contained to a small spot. But even contained to a small spot, when he goes home, takes off his robes and his armor and strips down to his regular clothes, right? Now she can see. Now his wife can see. She can't hug him. His kids can't see. They can't embrace him. This little girl can see what's going on in this house. That's another problem with social media. We only see images of people, right? You know, I haven't been on Facebook in so long. The, my, my picture on Facebook is from my father's 75th uh, birthday. And he's 88 now. That's how long ago it was that I think I was on Facebook, okay? So, you know, you're looking at these people. They all look really good. They don't look like that right off the pillow, by the way, okay? So that's the problem. We only see images of people. We only see what, we, what they want us to see. We don't see what they're really like inside. So everybody looks at him, and they want to trade places with him. Oh, but if they could only see him underneath. And, you know, sin in the Bible is a type of leprosy. You know why? Because sin... I'm sorry, leprosy is a disease that starts inside. It's a neurological disorder. It starts inside, but it manifests outside. But when it first starts, you can't see it. 
It's not until it gets outside that you can see it, that it's visible to the naked eye. I think God picked sin, I'm sorry, leprosy as a type of sin for this reason. If your sin did to your outside what it does to your inside, you deal with it in a hot hurry. You wouldn't wait till you get caught. You'd do something right away. The same way when you look, right? Oh, I got the prom tonight. I got this big zit on my forehead. I got to do something about it right away, right? Oh, I got to go to my reunion. I got bags under my... Right? We deal with those things that we can see right away. If sin manifested outside, what it's doing to you inside, you deal with it right away. Here's a big takeaway. First of all, for everybody, even if you're not a Christian, don't go around looking for people to envy. Lucy and I live about two or three blocks from, well, in Staten Island, they have Tote Hill, right, where all the Goombas live with their monstrous mansions and their big Shakespearean proscenium stages in front of their houses, right? Uh, Lucy and I live about three blocks from the Brooklyn version of that, Bergen Beach. So a lot of times when we walk our dog, we're walking past these magnificent, beautiful Goomba houses. I mean, really beautiful marble and all this other stuff. And it's tempting sometimes to walk by and go, Man, I'd love to live in that house. I wish I had that guy's money. I might like to live in that house, but I don't know what's going on in that house. You have no idea what's going on in that house. You don't know what kind of legal trouble that guy has. You don't know. I, listen, if it's a Friday night that we're walking our dog, I know where my grandson is. He's in a youth Bible study sitting there with his Bible open. That guy may not know where his kids are. They may be out running the streets, causing trouble, zonked out in some crack house. Don't be looking to trade places with people right away. You don't know what's going on inside. Big takeaway. Now, we see how everybody looks at him, but how does he look at everything else? How does he look at what's going on around him? Look at verse five. So he, he finds out this, there's this prophet who can take care of him. Verse five, right? We read it before. The king of Syria said, go, and I will send a letter, right? And he took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold. This is something like uh, over 100 pounds of gold and I think 700 pounds of silver. Wow, right? You see the, the, the currency market, they tell you how much gold is worth and how much silver is worth. I'm not gonna do the math, but this is a fortune. This is a fortune, okay? But the problem is, he's got the wrong means. He brings all of this money, he thinks he can buy a miracle. He thinks he can buy a miracle. Folks, He's got tons of money. He could buy a mansion. He could buy a Maserati, but he can't buy a miracle. You know why? The currency of God's economy is not money. The currency of God's economy is faith. You buy things from God with faith. In fact, was it uh, Isaiah 55? Come buy without money. Come buy without money and without price. How do you buy something without money? By believing. By believing that God will do what he promised unto you. It's a whole different currency. Do you know why you can't buy a miracle? Because the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, I think it's verse 18, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. We were redeemed with the incorruptible blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, okay? This man being healed from leprosy is a picture of New Testament salvation, a sinner being saved from his sin. Now, he's got the wrong means. Now, look at verses 6 and 7. This is kind of humorous almost. If, if, if it weren't so tragic, it would be humorous. Verses 6 and 7. And he brought the letter. So uh, the, his king, the king of Syria that he works for, writes a letter for him to take to the king of Israel, right? And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now, when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou, mayest, that thou you, the king, may recover him of his leprosy. 
Verse 7, and it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes. Remember the high priest did that. When Jesus said, when he asked Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He says, I am. The high priest tore his clothes. It's a sign of judgment, right? So this man says he rent his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. He's like, this isn't for real. This is a trap. This is a setup. Why does he send his military commander here and tell me, oh, oh, yeah, heal him of leprosy? He's trying to bait me into a fight so we could get into some kind of dispute and we could start a war. So not only does he have the wrong means, he's got the wrong mediator. Didn't she tell him that there's a prophet? He should be looking for a prophet, not a politician. Oh, that's the problem. See, he's been around politicians so long, he thinks politicians can solve all the problems. Right? Folks, politicians can't even solve political problems. They definitely can't solve spiritual problems. And they sure can't, can't heal leprosy. You know, if you read your Bible, you will find that they're, they're, you, listen, God ordained human government. He ordained it uh, in uh, Genesis 9 when, when Noah got off the ark. Okay? Whosoever sheddeth man blood, man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay? You know what the job? Government has one job, basically restrain evil and punish evil. That's their one job. And I don't watch the news, but I tell you, I think even a casual glance around will show, prove to all of us that their program for restraining evil has been a colossal flop. Okay? Do you know who's doing a really good job restraining evil? Much, much better than any government. You know who's the real crime fighter? Let me tell you something. Forget Marvel Comics. You want to see a superhero? You want to see some crime fighters? You want to see people who are restraining evil? Go peek your head around where the, the Sunday school teachers are teaching the kids. Amen. Those people are fighting crime. They're really fighting crime. You know why? They're preventing the crime before it happens. Amen. Every school in America, probably including this one, has a very detailed protocol to protect your kids during a school shooting. But none of them has a protocol for protecting your kid from becoming the school shooter. You want to know where you're going to find that? Amen. In here. Somebody's got to sit down with those kids and tell them that there's a God in heaven who cares about them, who made them in his image. They have something to live for. There's something to do while they're here, and then there's something to look forward to when they exit this life. He's got the wrong means. He's got the wrong mediator. You think about something, right? The Bible says there is one God... 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Do you know why Jesus Christ is the only one who can mediate between you and God? Because Jesus Christ is the only person who ever walked this earth who is fully God and fully man. Amen. Right? Think about that. If someone came in here and spoke only Spanish, I don't speak Spanish. One of my sisters would have to mediate for me. One who speaks both languages. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I think it's Job chapter 9. I'm sorry, it's not in my notes. He says, oh, between me and God, he says, oh, that there were, oh, that there were a daysman, like an umpire, a mediator between us that could lay his hand on both of us. Job is musing. Wouldn't it be great if there was someone who was fully man like me and fully God like him that could mediate this deal between us? Wow, Job was pretty smart for a guy who lived in the time of Abraham, right? Seeing something that wasn't going to happen for 2,000 years. 
Naaman's got the wrong means. He's got the wrong mediator. But wow, he's got the wrong method. Let's read this, verses 8 through 11. Ready? And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Isn't that interesting? That little girl was exactly right, wasn't she? He would heal him. He would heal him. Now, look at what he says. Let him come to me. You know, Jesus says that, right? Lord, we got to feed this multitude, and all we have is some bread and fish. Bring it to me. Oh, Lord, uh, we, uh, my son, he's, he's grievously vexed with a devil, and your disciples couldn't cast him out. What should I do? Bring him to me. You know, I think sometimes we get baited into arguments. We, we start getting into disputes over creation, trying to convince people of creation. Jesus didn't say, bring them to creation. He said, bring them to me. When they get saved and they start reading this book, God will convince them of creation versus evolution or whatever other ridiculous thing that they might believe that runs counter to the scriptures. Bring them to me. Now, that was verse 8. He says, they'll know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Can't you just picture him with his silver disco ball and his cool, fancy spree wells, the, the, the wheels that spin at a red light, and he pulls up in front of uh, Elisha's house like, all right, I'm here. Don't I, ain't I cute? You see me? I got my whole entourage now, right? Pulls up the door of house of Elisha 10. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth. That's King James for furious. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought. Folks, those two words are like nitro and glycerin. They are perfectly harmless if you keep them away from each other. You better be really, really careful when God tells you to do something and you say, oh, but God, I thought, but God, I thought, Abraham, I'm going to give you and Sarah a child. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. I was thinking, thanks, thanks for the invite, God, but I already have plans. Would you like to hear them? Behold, I thought, two of the most dangerous words you will ever speak. Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. I didn't even know they had Christian television back then. This guy's apparently watching some kind of Benny Hinn concert or something, right? Oh yeah, he's gonna, oh, she's gonna come out, he's gonna put his hand, I mean, he's gonna put on this big charismatic display. Wow, he's got the wrong method. And incidentally, This man, he is not a saved man. He's not an Israelite. He doesn't have a covenant with the true God, but he's not an atheist. He worships a false God. He's lost, but he's religious. The worst kind of lost person there is, the religious kind. If there's one thing that religious people love, it's big outward displays and rituals for everyone to see here pray with these beads, give this money, do that thing. Just jump through all these hoops so everyone can see how religious you are. Notice, Elisha doesn't even come out and talk to him. Elisha doesn't even come out and talk to him. That's kind of rude, don't you think? Regardless of the situation, this man is an important man, right? You'd think he would at least, you know, wave from the window, oh, I'm sorry, I'm running the dishwasher, I can't come out right now, I go, right? He sends a messenger out. All he does is send word. Do you know why he does that? 
Because any man that would put on the show and get all upset at something like that, come on the way he came on, he, Elisha knows the kind of man he's dealing with. He's expecting that outward ritual. And Elisha knows that if he goes out, the man of God goes out and does what he thinks should be done, what will, that, what will Naaman's faith be in? It'll be in Elisha. Right? He sends word so Naaman can trust the word of God. Right? Faith comes by hearing God's word, not by seeing God's prophet. Elisha knows what kind of person he's dealing with. He's got the wrong means. He's got the wrong mediator, the wrong method. Now look at verse 12. He's got the wrong mentality. Watch this. Are not, he tells me, oh, I got to go dip in the Jordan. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. I don't know, I guess apparently he joined the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. He's got a water quality issue. Oh, I don't like your muddy Jordan River. We have these beautiful crystal clear waters. Aren't they better? No. They're nicer. They're cleaner, but they're not better. Do you know how I know they're not better? Three times in the Bible, at least, the Jordan River did something miraculous. The Jordan River obeyed a man of God or command of God, right? God told, it was Joshua, right? When you're leaving and you're ready to cross the Jordan, just take the Ark of the Covenant and just as you get to the bank of the river, the Jordan's going to split in half. And then later on, when Elijah had to cross it, he took his mantle off and he struck the waters and it split in half. And then when that mantle fell on Elisha, who we're talking about now, he came back and struck those waters again and they split in half. The Jordan River obeys God Almighty. Those other rivers, as clean and pure and nice as they may be, aren't even mentioned anywhere else. They're nothing to God. The Jordan River is a type of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to be baptized, where did he go? The Jordan River. What did he say? When John says, you should really be baptizing me. No, 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 no. Suffer it to be so for now. Thus it becometh us to do what? Fulfill all righteousness to obey what God has told us to do. The Jordan River is a picture of obedience. That's why he wants them to go dunk in the muddy Jordan instead of those beautiful, crystal clear Poland spring waters that he has, right? Now, he's got the wrong mentality. He's got the wrong method. Folks, let's read verses 13 and 14. And his servants came. Ah, finally. Some more lowly servants with no names, speaking some common sense. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. Then, he, then when he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Folks, I, I can't help wondering. I don't know. I just think to myself seven times, right? Look, they, they, these servants probably like, sir, you came all the way here with leprosy. How silly is it to go all the way home with leprosy again? 
Just dip in the water. We got to pass that way anyway. We've got to cross the Jordan to get back home, right? Where is he going? He's going to Damascus. We talk about Paul having the road to Damascus experience. Naaman had the original road to Damascus experience. On his way back to Damascus, he dipped in that Jordan. And I can't help wondering, did he go under once and go, well, let's see, 100 divided by 7, that's about 14. So I should be 14% cleaner now, right? Oh, wait, 28, am I up to 56, right? Is that how our mind works? Maybe, I don't know, but he did it. He went all the way to seven times, and after the seventh time, he says his flesh, it says his flesh came away clear. Now, we look at this man, so prideful, so arrogant. Why should I do what you say? Can I just do what I want to do and be saved and be clean the same way? See how arrogant that is? That was me before I got saved. And folks, let me tell you something. Forgive my candor. I, I may never see you again. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's you. How do I look? That's how I look to God before I got saved. What do I need this, uh, this salvation, this born-again thing you're telling me about? Guy who witnessed to me, my mechanic, by the way, right? He started telling me about how to be saved. I don't need religion. I went to Catholic school. I got all this great stuff, and I have all this, and all my things, right? Prideful in all of my, my methods. My, I, had my own, I got my own mediator, too. I pray to her. We got a statue of her. There's only one mediator. There's only one means. There's only one method. There's only one way. There's only one way. Folks, Jesus Christ is your only hope. He is your only hope. There's no other hope. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He said, no man comes unto the Father but by me. We look at this man and we think, are you a knucklehead? Who turns that down? The man just told you how to, behold, I thought, you didn't think this leprosy on you. You can't think it off of you. Why don't you just do what he said to do? No, because I thought I have a better way. You know what the problem is? Here's man's problem, prideful man's problem. He hears that there's only one way to be saved, and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it, right? Oh, I can't believe there's only one way to be saved. How many do you need? How many do you need? There were probably lots of ways for my wife and my grandson and I to have gotten here this morning from Brooklyn, New York. But you know what? We put on our GPS, and we took the one that that's the way, right? That's the way we were supposed to go. There are other ways, but we took, the, we took one way. We only needed one way. We didn't need a hundred ways. We only needed one. Now you think about something. I hear people say this sometimes. There can't just be one way. How can there be only one way? First of all, you should be ecstatic that there is even one way to be saved. Instead of upset that there's only one way to be saved. But man's real problem is not that there's only one way. It's that it's not his way. It's not his way. If there were a thousand ways to be saved, he'd want a thousand and one. Of course, man always wants to go duct tape his own way. He wants to pile his idea on top of God's idea. Folks, let me tell you something. How do I look? How do I look? If you've heard the gospel today, even for the first time, and you're rejecting what you've heard, let me tell you how you look to God. All of your money means nothing to him. You can take your entire paycheck, come right from the bank on Friday after you get your check and come put that money in the basket on Sunday morning or Friday night or whenever it is. You know what the Bible says? They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you realize that until you get saved, you cannot do a blessed thing to make God happy? Do you know why? He cannot accept your offering. 
until you accept his offering. He offers you his son. And when he holds out the death of his son as the only means for you to be forgiven and made right with him, and you say, no, I'm going to try to make an end run around that. Behold, I thought I have another way. All bets are off. Offer is withdrawn. Folks, I'm going to wrap this up. Really, really simple. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to, we're not going to put on a big display. We're not going to strike our hands over you and have people passing out in the aisles. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, 